come together to worship you. And Father, we thank you for these songs that lift your name. And Lord, we just pray that as we go through this service and go through this day and go through this week, that our hearts would be singing praises to you. Lord, help us now as we look into your word to see what it is in the book of Hebrews that you want to teach us and help us to apply these things to our lives as we go about our week. We just ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Morning, everybody. Well, it's summertime, as all of us know, and uh, summertime in Pennsylvania particularly is a time for fairs and carnivals. How many of you here, raise your hand if you have been to at least one fair or carnival this year? That's probably about half, maybe a little over. Some of you, I've seen you at multiple fairs and carnivals, so I, I seem to, to meet up with you no matter uh, where I go. Um, I, I, love, uh, I love that kind of social aspect uh, that we have here. I've been told by friends that live in other states that a lot of states don't do this. It's not part of their culture, uh, but here it's very much part of the culture, and, and I, I really uh, I, I enjoy that. Now, let's do a little poll here this morning. You fairgoers, what's the best fair food? Just speak it out. Ice cream. Funnel cakes, all right. Corn dogs, what else? I, I, barbecue, corn soup, chicken corn soup, all right, ham, ham and bean soup. We got a lot of different ideas, sausages. I've heard a lot of things here. I kind of like them all, you can probably tell that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I can't get through the summers though without eating at least a couple bowls of corn soup. Now, the interesting thing about this, and and have you ever noticed how much we love to debate things? I mean, we love this kind of stuff. We love the whole discussion over what is the best. You know, top 10 lists, they're everywhere. Top 25 lists. College football is going to be starting up, and all you're going to hear is the top 25. You know? Think back to the year 2000. Actually, 2000, kind of going into 2001, and that whole changeover, and I know that's a big argument in itself, when did the millennium actually start? The millennium actually started in 2001, folks. That's reality. But, you know, that whole changeover from, from one millennium into another, there were lists everywhere. You know, every major sport had their list of, like, the, the 50 or the 100 greatest players in their sport, uh, you know, the modern library did the, the, the 100 greatest, uh, you know, modern, you know, novels that, that were written. I can't remember if it was just English novels. I don't think so. I think it was, it was worldwide. Um, I, I know the uh, American Film Institute did a list of the 100 greatest American movies that had been made. Uh, so everybody put a list together because we just love this stuff. All you have to do is listen to, like, a talk show or talk radio and it's always like, you know, who are, who are the 10 best or who are the 50 best or the 100 best? But you know, that's not new. That idea of using comparisons and making lists 
to try to determine uh, the, the superiority or, or inferiority of, of things or people. That is not new. In fact, it's used at times in the Bible. And, and as, as Glenn has been taking us through Hebrews here, he's been telling us pretty much every week that the main thrust of Hebrews is to show the superiority of Christ. Today, we are going to look at Hebrews chapter, 20, or chapter 7, verses 11 through 28. So you can turn there a while. We're going to kind of do a little bit of review, you know, for those of you who were not here last week, because we're going to talk about a guy that Glenn introduced us to last week called Mel- Melchizedek. So if you weren't here, we're going to do a review of who Melchizedek is, and we're going to kind of, you know, we're going to kind of, uh, you know, tread some of the same ground that, that Glenn did last week uh, for the continuity of the argument here. But then we're going to look at, at verses 11 through 28, and we're going to look at this guy, Melchizedek. Because the Bible uses him as a way of showing the superiority of, of Jesus, the superiority of Christ, and his priesthood to the Levitical priesthood. And, and the Bible's going to make a, a list of sorts, a, a comparison between Levi, the, the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, they, it goes by both names, and the priesthood of Melchizedek. And why Jesus, who is a part of that priesthood, is superior. Uh, you know, earlier uh, in, in, in the study, we saw the superiority of Christ over angels, and now it's the stress of the superiority of Jesus' priesthood. So that's what we're going to take a look at today. Now, let's do a little review here. If you look at, at chapter 6, verse 20, Verse leading into chapter 7, it says Jesus has already gone in there for us. There is the, you know, behind the the curtain into the Holy of Holies, uh, the holiest place to get access uh, to God. Essentially, Jesus is a priest that's given us direct access to God is what it's talking about. So Jesus has already entered that inner sanctuary. Uh, He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Last, last week, for, for those of you who were here, Glenn uh, you know, kind of gave us a, a review of who Melchizedek was. I want to read the first 10 verses of Hebrews 7 uh, and just kind of remind you of what Glenn had talked about last week. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and also the priest of God Most High. When Abraham was returning home from winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had, he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice and king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever resembling the son of God. Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses required that the priests who are descendants of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel who are also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. And Melchizedek 
placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. And without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. The priests who collect their tithes are men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are because he, we are told that he lives on. In addition, we might even say that these Levites, the ones who collect the, the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from, from which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. All right, so let's do a little review of who Melchizedek is. Now, as Glenn mentioned, there's been many, many views on who Melchizedek, or even what Melchizedek is. Uh, I, I read one commentator who, who they basically had done a survey of all the different kind of views out there and the different commentaries and, and different uh, kind of academic literature, and he said there's basically been seven major views of who or what Melchizedek is. But in his opinion, really only two could be sustained scripturally. And that is that Melchizedek is either what we call a Christology, he is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament, or he is a, 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 just a, a Canaanite man who for whatever reason, we don't know, was a worshiper of the true God, had retained that knowledge of the worship of the true God, and not only worshiped him, but acted as a priest in leading others in the worship of the true God. And he was also a king, king of Salem, which most scholars believe was the city-state of Jerusalem. And this is in ancient, ancient times, back in the time of, of, of Abraham, all right? So those are the two major views of who Melchizedek is. And as Glenn mentioned last week, he took the view that Melchizedek was a human being, a, a, just a, a person, a man, a Canaanite man who you know, was a worshiper of the true God and a priest of the true God. But he is being used here as a type of Christ. Now, and, and I agree with that. I, I agree with that completely. I think that is overwhelmingly the best way to take this. Um, if you actually look at the, at the one verse, it says... Uh, I think it's verse four, uh, it, it says that he is, is uh, verse three, it says uh, he has no beginning or end of his life, he remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. There's no need of you know, saying he resembles the Son of God if he is the Son of God. Uh, and that is the best way to translate that verse, that he resembles the Son of God. In other words, he's being used as a type of Christ. All right, well, what is a type? A, a type, using typology, is kind of using one person or one thing as a way of, of kind of foreshadowing something else that is, is coming. We all, I think, understand the concept of foreshadowing. Everybody has seen a shadow. You know, you're walking along, the light is at your back, you see your shadow going before you. I can see mine right now on the stage. I want you to picture yourself on a city street, and you're walking down the street, and you see a shadow coming from the other direction as you get toward the corner. You know something's coming, don't you? You know, you can see a shadow. It may be the shadow of a dog, and you know a dog's approaching, or it could be the shadow of a person. You know a person is approaching. You have some information from the shadow that something is coming right after it, okay? 
Now, when you see it, you can't tell all the details, can you, when you see a shadow? A lot of times you can tell if it's a man or a woman. You can tell even sometimes whether it's tall or short, you know, wide or skinny. But you can't always tell everything, and you can't get a whole lot of detail. But you get some detail so your mind knows, hey, somebody's about to step out in that corner. See, that's what a shadow does. And that's what foreshadowing does. It's a shadow that's cast before something. Uh, that it's a type of that thing that, uh, that allows us to be ready for the coming of that thing. This is, uh, is used in the Old Testament quite frequently of different characters who foreshadowed the coming of the Messiah, foreshadowed the coming of Christ. Some of the, the more famous ones are Joseph and, and Moses. They're you know, seen as two of the strongest kind of foreshadows of Christ. Because of their character, because of their faith, because of the way they lived, they pictured things that Jesus would manifest in a much greater way. Think of the humility of Moses. How when God said numerous times to Moses, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to destroy those people because of, of, of their, their evil deeds and because of their idolatry and what would Moses do every time Moses would stand between God and the people and say no God don't do that they're your people they they, they, you know you love them you made a covenant with them and God if you take them you have to take me too God even told Moses Moses I'll start all over with you man how about that for your ego I'll wipe them out, Moses, and I'll start all over with you. Moses said, no, God, I don't want to do that. If you take them, take me too. Moses, willing to sacrifice himself for his people, it's a type of Christ. It foreshadowed a love that was coming that would be greater than anyone had ever seen. That's really what Melchizedek is. He's a type of Christ. That's what we're told. He, he, He was meant to resemble Christ. You know, we're told that we don't have any record of his, of his parentage, of his lineage. You know, it doesn't mean he didn't have a father or mother. It means we don't have any record of it. God did that on purpose. He doesn't tell us anything about his, his past or what happened to him after Abraham. That way, in our minds, it's as if he lives on forever. So he could represent the kind of priesthood that Jesus would one day have, a priesthood that would live forever. He's a picture of Christ. He's foreshadowing it. Many, many years before Jesus would come onto the scene, people saw the shadow of the Messiah fall across Israel in the the person of different people and knew to look for something that was coming like that. They didn't have all the details. They knew someone was coming, someone great, someone greater, because, you know, the, the, the real person is always greater than the shadow. The shadow is cast from them. So they knew someone was coming that was greater, and that's really the argument that, that the writer of Hebrews makes in the whole way through the book, that Jesus is that greater one. He is the one who was, was foreshadowed. Think of some of the similarities between Christ and Melchizedek. They're both men. They are both king priests. They are both called kings and priests. Very rare. In Israel, a king could not be a priest. 
And we're going to talk more about that in, 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 shortly. Because that's part of the argument that he's going to make here for the superiority of Christ. They were both king-priests. They were both appointed directly by God, which again is something we're going to, to see here uh, shortly. We're going to kind of delve more deeply into that. They are both called by the title king of righteousness or king of justice. They're both called by the title king of peace. In fact, there are some Old Testament scholars that, that argue that we can't even really be sure if, if Melchizedek's name was actually Melchizedek or if that was simply his title, king of righteousness and king of peace. But isn't it interesting that Jesus is called those very same things when he comes onto the scene? So again, we see those similarities. Melchizedek is painting a picture. He's casting a shadow. In, in those verses we read, we saw that, that, that he blessed Abraham. When Abraham had won this great victory, Melchizedek came down and he blessed Abraham. And, and Abraham recognized the greatness of Melchizedek and paid him a tithe of all that he had won in battle. And the writer of Hebrews makes the argument that the one giving the blessing and the one receiving the tithe is greater than the one who receives the blessing and is giving the tithe. So the argument is Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. But then he kind of goes on and says, you know, Levi is the great-grandson of Abraham. If Abraham hadn't been born, you know, there would be no Levi. If God hadn't worked that great miracle in the lives of Abraham and Sarah and they had a son, Isaac, Levi would have never come along. You know, so if, if Abraham is greater than Levi and Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then doesn't that mean Melchizedek and his priesthood is greater than Levi and his priesthood? See, that's the argument that he's making. So last week kind of began the first stage of this argument that Melchizedek represents a greater priesthood and Jesus is, is a part of that priesthood. He is a, is a priest like Melchizedek. And so it's all part of an argument that the writer of Hebrews is making for the superiority of Jesus Christ, superior over anything, superior over angels, and now we see superior over all the other priests and priesthood, okay? So that kind of brings us to our passage today. The first thing I want us to look at here today is this is a different type of priesthood and a different type of law, okay? Let's look at verses 11 through 14. We'll start there, uh, and, and then we'll just kind of, you know, take this in, in, in pieces, it says, so if the priesthood of Levi, on which the law was based, could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood? With a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of in the order of Levi and Aaron. And if the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. For the priest we are talking about belongs to a different tribe whose, whose members have never served at the altar as priests. What I mean is our Lord came from the tribe of Judah and Moses never mentioned priests coming from that tribe. All right, so the first argument that he makes here is he says this is a completely different type of priesthood. 
And because it's a different priesthood, it needs a different type of law. Now, why is that? Well, as he pointed out, Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. And the law, the Levitical law, the law of Moses, was very specific that the priests were always to come from Levi. Judah is actually where the kings came from. Jesus was in the line of the kings. But the kings were not allowed to be priests. Now, I know, there, you know both Solomon and David, uh, you know, at, at kind of one moment in their life, kind of functioned as priests. But that was kind of a, a rare thing and, and something that, as a general rule, God did not like. In fact, Saul tried to do that, and that was one of the things that God had against Saul. That was never meant to be. The, the priestly line was to be the, the line of Aaron and Levi. So according to the Mosaic law, Jesus could never be our priest. He couldn't, because he was of the tribe of Judah. But the writer makes the argument that we needed a new priest. Let me again read verse 11. So if the priesthood of Levi on which the law was based, could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? He said we needed another priesthood because the old priesthood couldn't make us perfect. Now, I want you to hold on there a second because he's gonna develop that argument here in a few verses, and we're gonna talk more about it then, but for the moment, let, you know, just kind of hold on to the fact that he's saying here, this priesthood, the, the, the Mosaic priesthood, could not, you know, could not bring you perfection. It could not make you like Christ. It could not save you. Okay? It could show you you were guilty. The law was perfect. The Bible's very clear. The law was perfect in the sense that, that it had no error in it. But it was not perfect in the fact that it could not save people who followed it. You realize the law never saved anybody? No one. No one was ever saved by the law. You know, we tend to think like that sometimes. Well, yeah, they followed the law and that was kind of how they were saved in the Old Testament. No, absolutely not. You know, God points that out in Abraham himself long before the law ever even came along. What's he say saved Abraham? His faith. His faith. You know, Abraham believed the promises of God and God counted that as righteousness for him. But Jesus Christ, when he died for our sins, he also died for their sins. He covered all the sins that would ever be committed, Old and New Testament. Jesus' death covered Abraham's sins and Isaac's and Jacob's and Levi's and Judah's and and all of them, okay? The law never saved them, and we'll come back to that here shortly. So we needed a new law. We needed a, a, a new priesthood, and without a new law, we couldn't have a new priesthood, okay? We needed perfection, and the priesthood that, that we had could not bring that perfection, I want you to look at verses 15 through 19. 
says this change, this change from, from uh, you know, the old priesthood and the old law to the new priesthood and the new law, this change has been made very clear since a different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared. Jesus became a priest, not by meeting the physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the, and the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, you are priests forever in the order of Melchizedek. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law never made anything perfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. See, here he gets right down to the point. A new priest has arrived. Jesus is that new priest. Let me read the, the, the psalm that he quotes. And, and it's interesting. We, we don't know much about Melchizedek. Uh, you know, most of what we know about him really is in two, two places. It's, it's the episode, uh, you know, in, in Genesis where, you know, everything happens with Abraham. And then it's also in Psalm 110, verse 4. And throughout this study here in, in, in Hebrew, the, the one that he quotes over and over again is not the episode from Genesis, it's the episode, or it's this, the psalm in Psalm 110. So I want to read that psalm for you here today. It says in verse 4, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now this is a psalm that David wrote, and the Jewish people, from the time David wrote this and introduced this to them, they understood this as what's called a messianic psalm. That's a psalm that pointed to the coming Messiah. The Jews overwhelmingly saw this as messianic, that it, was, it wasn't you know, speaking really about David so much as it was speaking to someone who would come from David's line who would fulfill these things. And God was taking an oath. God was saying, I will make you a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is, is in verse 15, this change has been made very clear since a different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared. Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by a power, the power of a life that cannot be destroyed and the psalmist pointed this out when he said, you are priests forever in the order of Melchizedek. See, one of the things about Jesus is that Jesus can't, can't be destroyed. Now, you can say, well, he died. Yes, he did, but he was also resurrected, wasn't he? Resurrected to live forever, forever as the God-man. He has been forever as the eternal Son of God, but on that day where he was born into the human race as, as, a, as a human being, what we call the incarnation, when, when he became the, the, the child Jesus and grew into the man Jesus, and when he died for our sins and was raised from the dead, he, he forever will be the God-man. He, you know, he, he is forever God and man, both, 100% both. So he has become a priest that is eternal. His priesthood cannot end. 
It will not end, and he's going to, again, the next section we're going to look at, he's going to continue that argument. Now, this is a big contrast to the old priesthood. The old priesthood, you became a priest just because of the, the, the family line you were in. If you were in the line of Levi, if you were a man in the line of Levi, you, were, you became a part of the priesthood. The problem is, one, they died. They died. They were just men, and they died. Two, they were not perfect. And again, we're going to get more into that argument in the next section here. But I want you to think about the, the, the horrible quality of some of the priests that we have read about. Any of you have ever been, you know, been to Sunday school class kind of growing up, and you remember the stories of, of those old priests uh, you know, some of them were wonderful, but some of them were not. Some of them were horrible, and, and, and they did not deserve to be priests, but why were they priests? Because they were in the priestly line. So they were weak. They had the same weaknesses as the people that they were officiating for. They were sinners just like the people. And they died. They could not officiate forever. Even if it was the greatest priest that ever existed, they were still a sinner, and they would still die. But Jesus is different, he says. Jesus didn't become a priest because he was born in the line of Levi. Jesus was in the line of Judah. And he can't die because he is God. Jesus is a superior high priest. He lives forever. Again, look at verse 18. It says, yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law never made anything perfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. It's a better hope that we have now. You know, the Old Testament law, though it was perfect, again, in the fact that it had no errors, all it really did was it showed the people that they were lost in their sins. Paul talks about that numerous times in the New Testament. The, the law, in a way, was like, it's kind of two different metaphors in a way here. One is the law kind of showed you what things were really supposed to look like, okay? You know, the, the law was like holding up that perfect example of something. And then it was kind of like showing you a mirror of what you really look like. And the two didn't match. You get the picture? You know, the, the two didn't match up. This is what perfection is supposed to look like. Ugh, and this is what I look like. And that's not that. It's not perfection. See, that's really what the law did. The law, you know, God told him, hey, say, if you can live up to this law and not break any of these commandments, man, you know, I, I, I will bless you forever. He knew they couldn't do that, and that was the point. He was trying to show them they needed a Savior. They needed someone who could live up to the law and could save the rest of them. The law couldn't save, couldn't make perfect. It says the law, uh, or excuse me, um, it says now we have confidence in this better hope. You know, the, the law... I mean, it offered hope in a sort. They knew God was their God, that he loved them, he had given them this law. They knew there was something coming down the line. They didn't really know kind of what that all was gonna look like. See, it was just like a shadow. 
Yeah, they didn't know the details. But now when Christ has come, it's not a foreshadow anymore. The person's walked around the corner. There he is. We know what he looks like. We have a better hope. It says, through which we can draw near to God. You you remember in, in, in the Old Testament how fearful it was for them to draw near to God? I mean, everybody wanted to draw near to God, but at the same time, they're all scared to death to draw near to God. I mean, if you made one mistake in drawing near to God, you could just be like smoke and ashes. I mean, it was a scary thing to draw near to God. Remember when when they were given the law? When Moses went up on on Mount Sinai to to get the law from God, and the people heard the presence of God on the mountain, you you, you guys remember that story? And all the rumblings and the lightning and all the noise that was going on, and what did the people do? They didn't go, oh boy, God's here. No, they they ran and they hid and they said, oh my gosh, I, I don't want any part of that. Moses, you go on up there. Yeah, they were real bold, weren't they? Moses, you go on up there. You represent us. Even they understood there was something more to Moses, you know, than than was there in them. You go do that, Moses. We don't want anything to do with that. See, you know, drawing near to God, perfect, holy God can be a frightening thing when we're not perfect and holy. Yet God loved them and he wanted there to be a way, and that's why you know, he, he came up with the whole sacrificial system, you know, and the Holy of Holies where he would come and, and dwell with them, his presence would be with them, but they couldn't walk in there. If they did, they'd be struck down. The priest could only go in there once a year to sacrifice for their sins, and even then, he went in with fear and trepidation. You know, it, it was, everybody wanted to draw near to God, but it was a scary thing. But now look at what it says. We have a better hope, and through it, we can draw near to God. That's because the priest is also God himself. The priest is the sacrifice. He's made a way for direct access to God. What are we told now? Come boldly before the throne of God. Bring your prayers. Pray about everything. You know, you, you can talk to God every single day. Directly, you can talk to God. That was a much tougher thing for them. You have access now. You are called a, a child of God, a son or a daughter of God, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. If you put your faith in him, you're a child of God. Let's look at this next section, our last section here. Verses 20 through 28. The writer does something interesting here because he makes kind of three more arguments as to why Christ is superior. And he builds on the things that he's already been talking about. Essentially, he, he takes, he's laid the ground with those arguments and now he's gonna take those things and he's gonna flesh out the details. And he kind of does it, it's not really poetry, but he almost gives a poetic form to the prose here. He uses three sets of three verses. He gives it an order in order to do this, okay? 
So let's start by, by looking at verses 20 through 22. It says, this new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath. But there was an oath regarding Jesus, for God said to him, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break it. You are a priest forever. He again quotes Psalms 110 verse 4. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. So he builds on what he's already talked about and he kind of drives home the point. Jesus was made a priest by a direct act of God. The Levitical priests, they became a priest because of their heritage. Now, yes, God is the one who gave the law, so it still was you know, you know, through God, but God didn't say to them, hey, you, know, you Hezekiah, or you, Bob, or whatever you want to call him. You know, God didn't say, hey, Bob, I'm going to make you a priest. They were born into the priesthood. Whether they were worthy or whether they were not, they were born into the priesthood. We have no history about Melchizedek. The only thing we know is he was a priest of the true God. So in other other words, God made him a priest. And he foreshadows Jesus, who we're told here in Psalm 110 that God made an oath that he was making Jesus a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's not going to become a high priest because of any line of succession. He's going to become a high priest because God said to him specifically, son, you are going to be a priest forever. He says that's a better priesthood. You know, there were all kind of things in the law, like part of the ceremony of when when a a, a young man in the Levitical line would become a priest. They'd go through all kinds of ceremonies, but you know what they didn't have to do? They never had to make an oath. But here, an oath is made, but it's not an oath made by the priest, it's made by God who is making him a priest. And God is saying, you will be a priest forever, my son. Now, what's part of the power of that? Well, look at what he says in verse 22. Because of this oath, because God made Jesus a priest Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. Jesus is the guarantee of the better covenant. He wasn't just a a, a normal man. He was God. He's the eternal son of God. And now he's also our priest. The better covenant, and and the word covenant is also oftentimes talked about as a testament. That's why sometimes you will hear people talk about the Old Testament as the Old Covenant and the New Testament as the New Covenant. Okay, it's, it's, it's the same word often used uh, in, in the Bible. You know, it's the idea of a new law, a new, a new you know, covenant between God and man. Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant. That word there, you know, it says he guarantees. That is the word for surety. Now, you may say, what, what does surety mean? Surety was the same idea as, as what we have when we co-sign for a loan. How many of you have ever heard of co-signing for a loan? Yes, parents sometimes will do this for a child. 
you know, when they want to buy their first car or, or, you know, whatever, whatever the situation, and the child, you know, they, they don't know if the child's going to be able to afford it or not, and they might not give them credit, so the parent will come along and say, I will co-sign for your loan for you so you can get that car. Now, what's that mean? That means if the child doesn't pay the bills, the parent has to pay them. That's the word that's used here, the word for guarantee. Jesus is the surety of that covenant. You know, what's interesting is God is the one who's giving the surety. He's the one that is making Jesus the guarantee. In other words, God is saying, because he is my son and because I'm making him a priest forever, I guarantee you I will give you the promises I make. I guarantee you, I put it on the basis of my son and what he's done. He's my guarantee. I showed the reality of that when I accepted his death on the cross and I raised him from the dead. That was God saying, this is my son. You know, there's, there's a type of language sometimes that Bible scholars like to talk about. Uh, it's called coronation language. Uh, it, it's when, when, particularly when God is speaking of his son, uh, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, it, it'll say things like Jesus is, you know, you have become, today you have become my son. And that, it, it unnerves people sometimes because they're like, now wait a minute, is he saying that Jesus wasn't his son before? No, that's not what he's saying. It's coronation language. It's like, today I am publicly declaring you my son before all these people. It's kind of like what happened, you know, how many of you watched the whole uh, King Charles thing, like the coronation and stuff? I know you did. She's English, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he was always the, the queen's son, but that day he became king. You know, his title changed, but it, you know, it didn't change what he had been. And you see that sometimes in the Bible. You know, I want you to think of the times kind of when God does this with Jesus. Remember when Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water, and what do you see happen? You know, the, the Spirit of God lights upon Jesus in the form of a, do, a dove, and God cries out, behold my son, you know, uh, you know, this is my son, my beloved son, who takes away the sins of the world. You know, in him I am well pleased. You, you see it at, at the time of Moses and Elijah on Mount of the Transfiguration. You know, where there's just a handful of disciples there with Jesus, and all of a sudden Moses and Elijah appear, the spirits of Moses and Elijah. And, and the, the, you know, the disciples get this all kind of fuddled up, and they're all excited about the fact they're seeing Moses and Elijah. I don't know how they knew what they looked like, you know, but, but somehow they knew. This was Moses and Elijah, and they're like, hey, let's build a couple tabernacles here and let's have this place as a place of worship and let's keep them here. And, let's, and, and what happens? God speaks out. And God says, no, this is my son. Listen to him. You know, it's, again, it's those moments you know, that, that God speaks out and says, this is my son. Well, you realize the resurrection was kind of one of those moments. When God raised Jesus from the dead, it gave an absolute, you can bank on it, guarantee that Jesus is the son of God and God's saying, I'm gonna complete everything I promised. And I showed it by bringing him from the grave. And that's what it's talking about here. Jesus is the guarantee, he's the surety of a, of a new covenant 
And it will be fulfilled for sure because God showed it when he defeated the grave and raised Christ forever. So it's a better priesthood. Look at verses 23 through 25. There were many priests under the old system for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. See, all the priests died up until then. Even the best ones died. They couldn't hold that office and intercede for the people forever because they were nothing but mortals just like all the people. Jesus doesn't die. He died once and was risen from the dead never to die again. And the death that he died was a sacrificial death for the sins of the people. The priest became the sacrifice. It's a better priesthood. I I love how he phrases this Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. You realize you have a defense attorney that sits at the right hand of God and will forever be your defense attorney? The Bible tells us that Satan comes before the throne of God and is the accuser of the brethren. Now, Satan's a liar. And God knows that. But you know, when it comes to accusing us, he probably doesn't really have to lie a whole lot, does he? None of us are without sin. In fact, the Bible tells us, if any of us claim that, that we are a liar and the love of God is not in us. No one can claim to be without sin, the Bible says. No one but Jesus, the defense attorney who lives forever, sitting at God's right hand to defend us. So what happens when Satan comes and says, oh God, I saw Brian the other day, you wouldn't believe what what he was doing. He might be just absolutely right. But what happens? Jesus says, yeah, but I died for him. I died for him. I shed my blood for him. I paid the price for that sin you saw. He's mine. Satan can't have me. Man, I don't know about you guys. Man, am I glad I have an intercessor who lives forever to intercede for us. It's a better priesthood. The the old priest couldn't do that. Look at verses 26 through 28. He's the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness, but after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath 
and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. Amen. Amen. We have a sinless high priest. He was able to sacrifice himself for our sins and it was acceptable to God and again, God showed that when he raised him from the dead. I've accepted his price. Now he is a priest forever interceding for us because he is sinless and as he said, he's the kind of priest we needed. The, the priest, when, you know, they, they would have to, you realize how much sacrifices happen. Most of us really don't have much concept of the Old Testament. We think we do sometimes, but we really don't have much of an idea how those things actually worked. You realize they were sacrificing like every day? Because people were sinning every day. I'm not talking about the, you know, the Day of Atonement sacrifice with the scapegoat and everything. I'm talking about you know, sacrifices for sins that just happened every day. And people would come and sacrifice like a dove or, or, or something like that because they had done something wrong. So the priests were constantly killing things and shedding blood. And when they did that, they would have to sacrifice for themselves, too, because they were sinners. So before they could sacrifice for the, the, the sins of the people, they had to sacrifice for the sins of, them, of their own. But as I said, you know, those sacrifices never saved anybody. What it did was it cleaned them up enough to keep worshiping God. Here's another like scholarly concept that's often talked about. It's, it's the idea of sacred space. God would come and dwell with them in the Holy of Holies, but that was a sacred place. I, you want a good example of this? Think back to Moses and the burning bush. As Moses approaches the burning bush, what does the voice in the bush say to him? Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. It was holy ground because God's presence was there. That's what made it holy. And there were all kinds of laws dealing with cleanliness, cleanliness in the Old Testament because the presence of God was going to be there with his people and, and, and it, you know, they would get unclean because of things. It showed that they were in constant need of you know, having their sins taken care of. Yeah, even if they, if, if they touched a dead body or, or if, if women were in, in their, that time, their time of the month or things like that, they were considered unclean, not because God's like looking down at, at, you know, at different people, things like that. He's just saying this just shows that you know, we are unclean people. You, you know, we have sins. If you're gonna come into the presence of a holy, sinless God, something has to make you able to do that, and that's what the law did. The law made them able to enter sacred space. And when they got screwed up, they had to go back and, and do something, you know, confess their sins, do a sacrifice, make them able to be clean enough to enter God's presence in worship. That's all the law could ever do. Show them their sinners and keep them clean enough to keep worshiping God by the means he gave them, but it never saved them. Jesus is able to save forever because he sacrificed once for all. Because he was the perfect sacrifice, there would never have to be any other sacrifices. Because he knew no sin. Cost him to do this. I, I love the, the, the one song where it talked about how, you know, 
Jesus knelt down. He knelt down to save us. You know, I had an interesting week this week. I had some septic problems. Yeah, not much fun. Thank God for good friends. Tim Houck and Steve Jones. Who came out and, you know, looked at the problem and told me what was going on and gave me advice that, you know, I wouldn't have known what to do. You know, they didn't know it then. But they were acting like Christ to me. At one point, they literally were laying there with their head inches from my septic system. I didn't think about it at the time, but as I've studied for this sermon, I thought about Christ and what the Bible says he did. Kneeling down, and that's the root word, the root Hebrew word for grace comes from the, 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 the word to bend. It's the idea of, of a greater bending to the need of a lesser. It's where the whole concept of grace comes from. Those two friends bent down into the muck of my life to help me. Folks, understand this. Jesus Christ left heaven, bent down into the rubbish and the waste of our sins to lift us and elevate us into his family. We became his children through his act of humility. Never forget that. Never forget what it costs for him to do this. He is the perfect high priest. Levi could never do that. Aaron could never do that. No matter how much they may want to, no priest that ever lived could ever do that. Only Jesus Christ. And that is his point. Jesus is far superior to all the other priests, far superior to all because he is the only one who stooped down into our mess and saved us. He's the only one who could. So what do we do with this? Well, a little bit of application and hopefully kind of bridging the context over into our lives one, God can save forever. For us here who are believers, sometimes that becomes a struggle. We struggle with the ideas of loss of salvation and, and who I am in Christ. Never forget what Jesus paid to save you. The Bible says he can save forever. That's what it says there, doesn't it? We read that. He saves forever. Your worth, your value comes through Jesus Christ. He loved you so much he died for you. You are his. He will not let you go. He saves forever. The whole purpose of why he came was to save. Now, let's try to apply this to our own lives and how we live. Do you have concern for the souls of others? How do you see the lost? 
Do you see him as the enemy? Or do you see him as someone in need of Christ? You know how you're supposed to see him? The Bible says we don't fight with flesh and blood. Our enemies are the powers and principalities behind the evil works of this world. The people of this world, we are to be ambassadors to them. That's not a popular thought today in, in, in modern Christian America, but that is what the Bible teaches, whether we like it or whether we don't. How much concern do you have for the lost around you? They need Christ. Jesus paid such a great price to save us all, and we are the beneficiaries of that, if you will. But he wants to save them, too. He's made us our, his ambassadors to them. Another thing, we have access to God. We, we have access. We can go straight to God. You can talk to God. I mean, do you realize how amazing that is? How how. I mean, when has that existed in the world? One, most people have these crazy other concepts of God that are nothing but false gods. But even for God's true people, access to him, direct access to him, that's something the Jews didn't have. Yes, they could pray, but they really couldn't come before the throne of God. God now calls us his children says, come boldly to me like you would to a father. Come and ask me about anything. Talk to me about anything. That's the kind of access we have. Now, here is kind of our modern application of it. How often do you use it? If you really had to be honest, do you talk to God every day? You have an opportunity for something that, that like, you know, no one until the time of Christ ever really had, and that's direct access to God. Do you use it? If I'm going to be honest with myself, I have to say there are days I don't talk to God. And I ignore the only, you know, opportunity I really have to directly talk to the God of the universe. How can I ignore something so amazing? But yet I do. Now, I'm willing to bet I'm not the only person here in the room who does. How about this one? God loves us. God intercedes for us. Jesus, even to this day and on into eternity, will intercede, the Bible says, for his people. He, he lives to intercede forever. How often do you intercede for your other brothers and sisters in Christ, or even for the lost. Do you? Are you willing to involve yourself in their, in their lives? <laughs> I can tell you, Steve and Tim didn't, you know, I mean, thankfully they knew what they were getting into, but, whew, you know, that was quite an intercession. But yet they were still willing to do it. How often do you involve yourselves in the life of others? Are you an intercessory? We have a sympathetic high priest. The Bible tells us because Jesus came and took on a human life, became a man, he experienced the temptations that we do. 
Now, you might say, well, no, yeah, wait a minute. Jesus wasn't tempted to hack somebody's computer. No, of course he wasn't. But you realize all the sins that we do, uh, you know, they, uh, they all are meant to meet certain human needs. When we sin, we think we are meeting a need we have or a want we have. Jesus understood the needs and the wants of the human life because he was a human himself. He got tired and he got hungry and he got sick and all those things happened and ultimately he died. He knows why we do the things we do because he felt the needs that we have. He sympathizes with us. Do you sympathize with the lost? It's hard to sympathize sometimes, especially when you don't agree with the things they do and the way they live. But you know, you don't have to agree with them to sympathize with them. You don't have to agree with them to care. You think Christ agreed with us when he stooped down to die for us? Uh-uh. Didn't stop him from meeting the need, though, did it? See, that's what mercy and grace are all about. Does that characterize your life, mercy and grace? We should try to love like him. Boy. Be a little bit more patient with one another, a little bit more caring, a little bit more empathetic. Doesn't mean we have to agree with everybody. But do you care? See, that's the picture Christ painted. That's the picture of the perfect high priest. Not an easy picture, but that's the path we are supposed to walk to. Live like Jesus. Bring others to Christ. Pray. Intercede for others. Be sympathetic. A lot to learn from this high priest. Thank God for him. I would be lost eternally without him, and so would you. Remember that as you go out into this week. As you rub shoulders and brush up against other people, probably most of them people of this world who do not agree with us and who do things that we do not like. Things the Bible says are sin. You don't have to agree with them. As you go through this week, I want you to remember the high priest who didn't agree with you, but knelt down to meet your needs. Loved you enough to do it. Let's remember that. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for my high priest, Jesus Christ. He is a priest and a king. Father, he's the only high priest who could really meet our needs. He's the only high priest who could pay for our sins. He's the only high priest that could save eternally. And I am so glad he has come to do that for his love and his mercy, his grace. Father, please help me, please help my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ here 
to be like you, to make an impact on this world around us by the, the mercy and the grace of Christ that we show to the world. Give us the strength to do this because it's not easy because it's a wicked world filled with people who do not love you and people who, who do things that we, we find horrible, Father. Yet you died for them. You ask us to be your ambassadors to them. So I pray that you give us the strength that we need to do this. Help us to never forget what you've done. Never lose our appreciation for what it is that you've done. Or to drive us to a place of becoming more and more like you and, and giving us our, our life complete, giving you our life completely because that's what you want. That's, you say that is our reasonable service. And so, Father, help us to do that. Lord, if there are any here in this service today who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, I pray that today they will have seen their need for that great high priest, for one who could save forever. Father, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. I ask these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Would you please stand? Let's make the words of this song the prayer of our hearts and reflection of what we've heard in the message today. Sing with me, your kingdom is simple. Your kingdom is simple, as simple as the you welcome the children, you stop for the ones. We want to see people the way Jesus does. Your kingdom is simple, Lord, teach it to us. Your kingdom is humble. Your kingdom is humble, as humble as death. This king is a savior, so big is his breath. So may we die daily, our pathway to rest. His kingdom is humble. Kingdom is coming. Your kingdom is coming. Your 
this world calls us cursed, the small become greater, the less become first. Your kingdom is one more time, just the verses, just the voices. Hallelujah. You know, the hardest part of any time you kind of, you know, hear the Bible preached or taught, the hardest part is then to figure out how to live in the light of that following that. How do you apply it to your life? How do you live it out? I mean, it's a hard thing for all of us. I, this week, just as, as you go about your week, this is what I want to ask you to do. Just constantly remind yourself of what Christ did for you, of that perfect high priest. All throughout your day, you know, let the Holy Spirit bring that back to your mind and remind yourself of what that perfect high priest has done. Just maybe if we do that, if we just keep bringing it back to our mind, keep exercising it to our mind, Maybe we'll start living it out. Maybe we'll have changed lives. Just ask God to do that for you this week. Keep it in your minds. Guys, have a blessed week. See you guys next week. Thank you.